have just finished our celebration. It's kind of like our Super Bowl, if you will, during the year of Easter. The fact that we have a resurrected Lord, that our God did not just stay on the cross, that he did not just stay in the grave, but that he rose again. And now we await, at least in the scriptures and the gospel that we're reading right now, his ascension to heaven where he will be king, looking over all of what is going on in our lives and ruling from this heavenly throne, awaiting his bodily return again as we walk through the scriptures. And I thought about this passage and what we see in Peter's life very clearly. Peter, I absolutely love that God had Peter as part of, as those who had found the church, as a man who was just as faulty as myself, as just as seemingly clueless or emotionally, um, I guess, not uh, hedged in, that his cart is before the horse oftentimes. And as we look at his life right here, I want to point out a few things in this passage. I will not cover every scripture, but I will cover some of the main things and certainly the three times that Jesus addresses him. But as I thought about this passage, I used to, so that you have a window into my life, work in festival ministry. So I used to work with Christian festivals. I've done probably close to 30 of them, um, where we'd have these tremendous times of fellowship together as Christians. We'd have great speakers, probably ones that you would all know and maybe have these things called tapes of, recordings of, now audio files of, these speakers And they would come and they would give these altar calls to tens of thousands of people that had paid to come to this event. And then as they gave their altar call in the evenings, responding to Christ and who he was, and would they come and partake in the goodness that is Jesus, you'd see the rows just literally line up and they'd fill and pack them down. And I'd be in amazement as I stood from the sound tower, because part of my job was recording some of the speakers at that time, and I'd be like, wow, look at all these people giving their lives to the Lord. And there'd be literally thousands, thousands. And that'd be just for one night. And then it would continue on Thursday night, and then Friday night, and then Saturday night. Thousands would pack those aisles. And it would be amazing, and you're sitting there watching, and your hearts are full. Kids are crying. Parents are crying. Other parents are crying that their kids aren't crying. Crying is going on. God is moving, it would seem. You watch the prayer tent fill up that we had on the side. People being prayed for. Hearts are rejoicing. And Saturday night comes, and the last strum of a guitar happens. The last band walks off the stage, and teardown begins. You see, this event had an ending. It had a Saturday night. We actually had fireworks. And after that was all done, I'd stay up all night, literally, watching a stage be struck, torn down, the semis be loaded, everybody pull out, I'd work all through the night making sure all the different areas over roughly 200 acres were cleaned up as campers started to pack up. And the sun would rise, I'd get about an hour or two of sleep, and I'd look out onto those same exact fields where people were in lines and droves, and all there was was dust. There were worn trails, there was trash all over, to my right was no less than a monument of the Great Wall of Porta Potties. <laughs> and there were tents out in the field, some that had been destroyed throughout the week just because people don't know how to use tents. And there was this emptiness and dust flying. 
And the emotional adrenaline of the high of this Christian life, of this time that this event had come to, now we're left with the everyday looking at ourselves saying, what now? Where is my emotional high going to come from? I think that we've all probably had experiences like this. It's not just the festivals that we would do. People get these highs, if you will. People encounter Christ in ways during services, during Sunday school, in their private devotion time. All of us have had these experiences. But after the dust settles, after the pictures are re-experienced with family and friends, and after the PowerPoints have been shown, we are left with ourselves. We are left with the reality of a fallen world, our messy lives, and our own sin comes into particular focus. The God who elicited such great emotion from our worshipful hearts so completely surrendered now seems distant, or at least we perceive him to be. Where does that next spiritual morsel come from? To where do we turn? And this is where we find the disciples in John 21. They've just come off the unforeseen reality of the risen Christ. My Lord and my God, as Thomas would declare in just the previous chapter, Pastor Aaron pointed out last week. Yes, it's one thing to see the many miracles of Jesus throughout his life, but to be raised from the dead with the very holes in your hands and in your feet that put you there. On top of that, they were just commissioned. The, the Great Commission is often referenced primarily in Matthew and Mark, maybe even sometimes Luke. We actually, if you missed it, saw it in John, at least John's rendition, his mentioning in chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. It says this, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, they were sent, just as the Father sent Jesus. Yet, now they find themselves back in the comfort zone about the fish in the Sea of Galilee. As John calls it, the Sea of Tiberias, they are the same sea. Why were they there? Why were they fishing? Like, for fish. And not for men. Why has the miraculous last couple of weeks seemingly become a blur? As a testament to our human nature, our spiritual ministry and resurrection highs are often eclipsed by our circumstances. How we perceive our past, or even how we wish upon our future. And when this happens, we miss that Christ is fully in our present. Christ is fully in our present. However, John 21 shows us that even in the midst of our dullness and our denials and our deflections, Jesus is still there calling us to follow him, for this is truly the mark of a disciple. I want to address the context here, and this is primarily conjecture. Uh, in John chapter 21, we're not given a ton of information all we're shown is that the disciples, there's seven of them, are shown that they're going to get together and on kind of Peter's inclination to do what he does best, he's like, well, I'm going to go fish. And so the others join him. R remember what just has happened. They've just seen a resurrected Jesus. 
Thomas has just come at least up close and personal, if not touched, the holes in his hands and his side. They've seen him eat. They've seen him appear in the house in which they were staying, which was locked out of fear, but he just appears there. And this would be the third time now as we're walking into this, so two times, they, two times they've already seen him. And yet they find themselves almost as if they're looking around at each other saying, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? They couldn't say, I'm going to go to the army on the GI Bill. No, they got to say, I'm going to go fishing. So they go and do what they know to do. Reflecting on this passage, Kostenberger would note, Peter, either hungry, bored, or out of money, announces that he is going to start fishing again. Waiting for the Messiah to appear did not pay the bills or put food on the table. The other six disciples present, following Peter's leadership, readily join him. I don't know about you, but after experiencing life with the life giver, I would not want to go back to my daily job from which I was called. Peter is not too distant from me. But Jesus shows up in the midst of Peter's dullness, his seeming monotony. In verse 5, we see Jesus on the shore yelling out to his disciples, Children, do you have any fish? This is quite remarkable and should awaken a bit of deja vu from Luke's gospel narrative. In chapter 5, verses 4 through 11, you should see this on your screens. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 11. I want to kind of do a flashback here because I believe this is where Jesus is heading with his disciples as he addresses them. Starting in verse 4, it says this, And when he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed, enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee. Would I, let me just refresh your memory. James and John are with them right now in John chapter 21. That John is the author of the Gospel of John. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will, be you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus begins to awaken their hearts by reenacting a scene where at least three of those presents were initially called to follow Jesus. It's almost like he wanted to stir in their hearts a recollection of what was to sustain them. Remember your beginning. Remember my abundance. Remember my provision when I first called you. So now we'll go back to John 21, and we'll start at verse 4. And when, uh, excuse me, verse 5. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Again, seeming very similar. They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
It's almost as if in John's mind, a light went on saying, wait, now wait a second. Wait, wait a second here. I, I remember this scenario. Yeah, I remember it happening. Okay, that, that was us on the receiving end of the fish. That, that means that my, that's him. Like, that's Jesus. They hadn't recognized him before, but, but Jesus is starting to, by his spirit, illumine their minds as to, wow, this is what he's pointing to. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Again, I love Peter. His impulse, his let's go get him. This is typical, throwing himself impulsively into the next situation without much thought. He, he did this throughout the Gospels. We know he does this. He did this when Peter was saying, I must die, I must go and die. He says, no, Lord, not you. He says, get behind me, Satan. He does this even more recently with Malchus. Jesus is to be arrested. What does he do? Takes out his sword, cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. Or what about when he walked out in the water? You're out there, hey, can I come out there? Sure, you get out there and he starts to sink. His faith oftentimes did not match his impulses. He did not understand necessarily what was going on, but I'll tell you this. Peter was all in. That is what I love about Peter. He's all in, sometimes sinfully so. Why come in on a boat just 100 yards from the shore when, like Peter, you can put more clothes on, jump in the water, and swim? But let's just think for a second. If you were in the midst of having to return to a job that had you get up in the middle of the night just to have the potential of hauling in some fish for the early morning market, wouldn't you jump at the chance to leave that? Wouldn't you jump at the chance to go back to an exhilarating life with Jesus, especially the risen Jesus? And this doesn't just happen in non-ministry contexts, as boredom and monotony can happen in the life of those in ministry. Again, a window into me. There's one time where I was training in central Siberia, and I had the opportunity literally to fly there for only two days of training. So I left on one day, flew out to Moscow, and then immediately took an overnight into Siberia with a good friend of mine, Brian. And we were to train for two days in Krasnyarsk, and many pastors had come, and we were showing them tools for ministry in which they could take back to um, their local settings to tell about Christ and his story. And I remember I was just, I was absolutely just exhausted from the travel in and of itself. Uh, and I knew that I had 10 hours straight, 10 hours straight of teaching to do. Meaning we didn't stop, we were in a confined room, it is a packed room, everybody's shoes are off, and it's at the end of winter. It was a healthy environment in there. <laughs> and so Brian would start out as he did, a, he did a lot of the primary teaching in regard to missiology, what missions looked like, how to reach your culture, and I would do a lot of the, the philosophy and the ways in which our missions a, agency would actually do ministry, the tools that we used from skits to engaging people in a setting. And I remember just sitting there, and um, when, I, when I talk about fighting dozing off, I mean, it's worse than what you're doing to me now. It's like way worse. I mean, they were literally, it, it was just, it, it, was, it was difficult. But here they are, every single one of them, at a school desk, writing down almost every nook and cranny of our translator's words that could come out of our mouths. 
And God begins to awaken me to the moment. And so instead of me getting ready to go present for hours about something that I've done 50, if not more times than that, I started to refocus that my dullness, that the monotony of the moment. I'm speaking to souls here, and God wants to use this moment. And he's graciously provided me an opportunity to engage people with tools to resource them so that they can proclaim the gospel and I remember in the middle of that time, during lunch, we actually took a quick lunch break. And one of the, um, my translator came up to me with two different people. And she says to me, this gentleman is from a people group that is up from up north. So, so northern Siberia. We're talking the tundra. And he took a boat, a helicopter, and then a train to get here after hitchhiking, actually a cab, to actually get to the physical location. So four different modes of transportation just to sit with this guy Kevin and this guy Brian to teach on ministry opportunities. And she begins to tell me that he is one of only about 900 people left in his entire people group. 900 people left in his entire people group. It was he and his other friend that had come. And that just shook me to the core that I would treat them as a, just another opportunity to spout information to. This was a gospel opportunity. This was not dullness. This was not monotony. This was God in the present using me for his glory to enact his purposes to make people alive with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If only I'd focused on the fact that I had done this training 50 times, I would have missed how Christ placed me in an opportunity of a lifetime. And this brings us to what I perceive and I believe to be what Peter has been waiting for since Jesus' resurrection. He had seen Jesus show up to Thomas, right? He had seen him reconcile that relationship. God returned that, Jesus returned that second time, specifically to their house, so that they could answer Thomas's question. I will only believe it if I put my nails into those holes in his hands and his side. And so Peter is probably thinking, oh, what about me? Oh, what about me? And so Peter... Waiting for Jesus, he shows up to address Peter, Peter's denial. As we all know, Peter had a large, unresolved issue burning within, and Peter is wired emotionally, as we've already talked about. So don't think for a minute that his three-time denial had left his mind or his heart. And this is not a one-off questioning, as John specifically links the two scenes in verse 9 when he says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it, and bread. That word used for charcoal fire, charcoal fire, is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used in John 18, verse 18, where we find Peter warming himself by charcoal fire right before he denies Jesus. This is not just a second one-off three-time question. This is a link scenario where Jesus is looking to restore Peter, even though Peter has denied him three times. Jesus is engaging Peter, even though Peter has denied him. Jesus still chases after Peter, even though Peter had denied him. John, John is trying to trigger our minds so that we connect these two scenes and watch them play out. Will he be rebuked? Will Jesus' plans to him be scrapped for another person in a plan B? Well, we all know, no, that's not what happens. Quite the opposite. And so let's read in verse 15 of that encounter. When they had finished breakfast... As verse 15 picks up, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Some things to note. The word for love here is varied in the language between Jesus and Peter. Uh, Peter uses the word phileo as his way of responding, yes, I love you. Jesus uses the word agape the first two times, and then the third time responds with phileo. Now, in the past, some theologians have said that there is some dramatic significance to this, that these words that are changed, almost intentional, but I would suggest that there isn't. Many theologians now will come to recognize that John, throughout his gospel, actually uses those words interchangeably. He actually uses it with the Pharisees more specifically in John chapter 12, 43. He uses agape, that almost more complete love. Phileo would be a more brotherly love, whereas agape is a more holistic, complete love. And he uses this in pointing out to the error of how the Pharisees look for love, agape, from their fellow men. The primary issue that John wants us to note is that Jesus is asking Peter the same basic question three different times and pressing in each time with slight variations for the purpose of facing the denial of Jesus, facing his own sin. In verse 17, it says, Peter was grieved because the light went on and his sin was directly in front of him, front and center, between he and Jesus. He was confronted with his sin. Gerald Borchardt would note that the third time did it. Imagine again the scene as Evangelist framed it. A charcoal fire and three questions about Peter's relationship to Jesus. It hardly takes a genius to relate this event to that of the denial. Facing up to oneself is a traumatic experience. Amen? If you've ever come encounter with Christ and realize that your sin separates you, that is a traumatic experience. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Lest we think Peter's denial is rare, I would be afraid to know how many times I've done so, let alone have it recorded for all to see for thousands of years. The reality is that we as mature Christians are just as quick to say when being convicted by the Holy Spirit, I, I know, I, I know, as some flippant response, yet drive right through the various stoplights on our way to sin. In your bulletins, there's another quote from Borchert, and he states this, Off-the-cuff replies and well-meaning superficial responses to the risen Lord will not work in the call of Jesus to the life of discipleship. Off-the-cuff replies and superficial responses. You say you're a Christian, do you mean it? You say you're a Christian, do you really mean it? Or is that just an off-the-cuff response? Say, I follow Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Really? Now, I think what's key here in this specific point is when we as people are confronted with the sin that we have by God's Spirit and realize that it is sin and that He is sinless, we have this thing called repentance. And repentance is a serious thing, but I think that in Christian culture, an easy confessionalism, or at least an easy believism, 
that oftentimes we feel that the end of the story is us confessing to Christ that we've sinned, and then we get up and we leave, and then that's it. But then we carry that with us. Why do I come back to this? Why am I engaged in this? Why do I deal with this sin? And the way in which I see repentance, and as I was praying, it's actually not too long ago, maybe six months ago, and I thought through it in my own life, and what I do, and why I go back to the things I go to, and why I serve my flesh. I thought through it this way. If I look at repentance as facing and acknowledging my sin, I turn and I place it at Christ's feet. But I don't stop there. I look up at Christ's face, and I leave in the joy of forgiveness in Christ. I leave with joy. I don't stop with my head turned down, my face at his feet, and my sin in front of me, and saying, oh Lord, this is what I bring to you. If I don't look up at Christ's face, I do not know the forgiveness that is being extended in my direction. And I leave almost incomplete, no better than where I was in the first place. Because I've not looked up at Christ's face, I just turn and I'm like this. And I live under this condemnation of sin and try to carry that yoke with me all throughout my life. That's not what Christ would have us do. He says, come to me. You and me have sin. Come to me. Lay it at my feet. Look at my face. Realize that regardless of what is being placed there, I forgive you. My blood is sufficient. And then what does he say? Not only are you forgiven, but take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is where we walk out of God's throne with joy, with a lightness and step, with a walk that says, I am confident because Christ has forgiven me. Go and follow him. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures, what? Forevermore. We forfeit that when we don't look at his face, when we come to him with our sin. There are joy. There is joy. There are pleasures in the presence of God. Engage Christ at his face when he comes to us with our sin. That is not the Jesus who Peter pursued, and that is not the Jesus who pursues you and me. I think of it as a tree, and I want to, I guess I want to counter the other side of that. For those who do live in a world where you are focusing so much on your sin, and, you, and, and there's actually a good part of that, and I, let me qualify that. That we are to know that we have a propensity in our hearts to leave God, that we want to follow our own desires. That, as the psalmist said, and I actually think I said it in the last sermon, prone to wander, though I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I think there is a good, healthy understanding that your heart is prone to wander and that you focus on your sin within the context of the reality that there it is, and it's always going to be there in the sense that until we are glorified with Jesus face to face, there it is, we're dealing with it. But the great thing is that as we look at it, we see it only in light of God's grace and his sufficiency to cover it, so that we don't, we don't sit there and dwell upon our sin, but we dwell upon the goodness of God who has covered it completely. 
and watch him in us produce a tree and a harvest of fruit because of our understanding that God is greater than that. That where our sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. The good news of the gospel is that when Jesus shows up after we have denied him, he is graciously reminding us to get up in his strength and follow him. His grace is sufficient. Confess, be forgiven in Christ, and move on and follow him. You have freedom to do so. However, as we do, let us not take our eye off the prize, or as Peter demonstrates, Jesus shows up and clearly sees our deflections. As Jesus is encouraging Peter to still follow him, he paints a picture of what it will look like. It's not necessarily filled with the pastels of the Easter season. He says, starting in verse 18, Truly, truly, stressing the importance I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you cannot and do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. There would have been no doubt what Jesus was referring to here, crucifixion. This was a very common way to describe it, the stretching out of one's hands. Peter knew. Historically, we know that Peter was martyred, and most church historians would say he was crucified. Some would even suggest that he was crucified and didn't want to be crucified right side up, but that he'd prefer to be upside down, letting only Christ hold that place. If I know I was going to be crucified, I would want to follow the one who overcame death by crucifixion. Not only that, I would want the power to do so. And so, Christ bid Peter to follow him. But right after this exchange, right right after he's delivered this news, right after God almost gives him a glimpse into the future of what it meant to follow him, Peter sees John, or maybe he intentionally looks for John. It's almost like you were delivered news and you don't want to really deal with it. And so you're like, uh, uh, what about him? What, what about, uh, it's, it's getting a little hot in here. Somebody turn the heat on? What, what about this guy over here? What about John? The beloved disciple, and he asks about him. And I don't blame him. I would want to deflect. <laughs> I would want to completely change the subject if that were put before me. But Jesus does not let him do it. He basically says... Don't worry about him. You. You. You follow me. Don't worry about him. I'm calling you. You follow me. He wants to make sure his focus is straight. Stay in your lane, you might have heard. Taken from the fact that if we're driving our cars and we're following a road and we're asked to stay in our lane, if you start to focus on other drivers or focus on the roadside, or focus on the great mountains or the scenic view, what will start to happen? You start to veer. Just like writing on the chalkboard. I don't know how that happens, but it does. You start to veer. And what's going to happen? You're going to hurt yourself, or, and, you're going to hurt others. Jesus is saying, stay in your lane. He sees right through his deflections. Well, Jesus sees right through our deflections. Sometimes we deflect by comparing ourselves to others. We might say, I'm doing pretty good in this area, especially compared to so-and-so. Sometimes we deflect by wanting to make sure others are doing their part in following Christ. If I have to do this for Jesus, then you have to do it for him too. Don't know why you're not showing up on work day. 
Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, we as people have been deflecting our sins forever. And Jesus tells Peter, and he tells us, don't worry about them, you. You follow me. And we know these word pictures stayed with Peter. He would take them to heart, utilizing Christ's word picture of leadership. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, he says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock. Same language. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The greatness of our Savior is that he engages us. That though we turn from him, that though we see maybe life is sometimes as boring, that the Christian life doesn't give us the feels all the time, that we deny him at times when presented opportunities to share Christ or to live out Christ, and that oftentimes when we think about the call that Jesus gave to us to follow him, we deflect and we look at others instead of working on what's right in front of us. Christ has called us to follow him. We are not so different from Peter. I could give examples after examples after examples in my life where I've done each of these things. But the story doesn't end there. Christ pursues us. Christ pursues you. Christ pursues me. And he says, no, I am sufficient. My grace covers that. Come still, though. Follow me. Not only that, I want to use you to spread my word and minister to others. Jesus told Peter not to be distracted by others when it came to following him. He simply said, you follow me. But what about you? Who or what is distracting you from following Christ? I'm not asking if you're going to church. I'm asking if you are following Christ. Like Peter, our insecurities and our inadequacies can pile up so high that we feel inept to follow him. However, Christ is so gracious and so kind that where our sin abounds, Christ's grace abounds all the more. He will not leave us. He certainly will not forsake us. He has called us and he will work in and through us to accomplish what is before us. The intent of the resurrection is not actually to look back, though we do that historically. The intent of the resurrection is to point us forward, knowing that at some time God is going to return and we, in turn, will be resurrected with him. That it would drive us to him. That like Jesus said, that for the joy set before him in Hebrews, he endured the cross. He is the joy that is set before us that we would endure in this life and that God would use us as we wait for our resurrection. Oh, our, so, our sin so easily entangles, but know that God is there to empower us to walk out this Christian life and to follow him. God is a good God. God is a faithful God. God's gospel is good, that even you, if you have not come to him at this point in your life, 
If you feel that the mundane has been the mundane for decades, if you, you, if you feel you're in a place where there's no fervency, that when you say to yourself, Jesus is risen, you do not respond in your heart, he is risen indeed, but you say, oh, really? Where? Right now, God is calling on you to follow him. Jesus is here saying, follow me. He is faithful. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness as he calls us to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for not only sending your son that we might be cleansed from our sin and have righteousness be clothed on us, but Lord, you have called us to follow you, that you do not leave us alone, that you promise to be with us, that regardless of our past, our present, or how we think our future might end up, God, you will be with us step by step, that you've called us to rise and walk and follow you. Thank you for your spirit that enables us to do this. Draw us unto you and be glorified every step of the way. We are yours in Jesus' name. Amen.